there's only one snack that can make me feel like I'm having the true movie theater experience, and that's popcorn. When my mom and I hang in for a girl's night, we have to get our fix, and that's where Kelly's Killer Popcorn comes in. They're a small batch gourmet popcorn company, and believe me, one bite and you'll be hooked. Made in Austin, Texas, this family-owned business has tons of flavors. My mom loves their salted agave caramel, while I have a hard time picking between black pepper or dill pickle. Hmm, maybe I'll just mix the bags together. Oh, and when my dad and brother crash our girl's night, you know that spicy nacho popcorn is coming out. Every flavor is popped in 100% real butter and is whole grain and gluten-free. Which flavor will you be choosing? Head on over to kellyskillerpopcorn.com to indulge yourself in some scary good gourmet popcorn. And make sure to tag them on Instagram at kellyskillerpopcorn so that they can see what movie you're pairing with their flavors. That's kellyskillerpopcorn.com for American-made, small-batch, delicious popcorn. I might be vegetarian, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good spice rub. My favorite place to get them is Smoked Bros, a veteran-owned and operated business that sells premium handcrafted dry rubs, spice blends, and seasonings. Guys, you can even put it on your popcorn. My favorites are Honey Badger, because he doesn't give a bleep, and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping, because mm, 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 some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out smokedbros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. On May 19, 2023, actor Rick Dalton passed away peacefully in his home in Honolulu, Hawaii. He is survived by his wife, Francesca. Dalton was beloved by fans of Bounty Law, where he played bounty hunter Jake Cahill for five seasons and also for his iconic role as Eddie Karpinski, the flamethrower-wielding vigilante in The Fireman, The Fireman Part 2, and The Fireman 3, CIA Crackdown. But he was so much more than that, with a career that spanned over 20 years. On this episode of the Video Archives podcast, we invite you to remember Rick Dalton. In Part 1 of our memorial episode, we begin with a Q&A conducted by Quentin in 1999 between him and Rick. Then, we discuss his famous roles and some standout television performances in Cades County and Manhunter. My name is Gala Avery, and joining us now, here's Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery. Last Friday, May 19th, Rick Dalton passed from this earth. He died with his wife, Francesca, in Honolulu, Hawaii. Let me bring my co-host into the show. This is Roger Avery sitting across from me. Hello. I'm happy to be here. And Gala Avery. Hi, I'm here early. She is here early. Well, it's uh, a kind of a special day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I got in touch with the guys, the Averys, and uh, said I wanted to do this special episode. And then they came over. And then just the other day, we watched some of uh, Rick's videos. Roger did you grow up knowing who Rick Dalton was? Did you uh, watch Bounty Law? Did you watch 14 Fish and McCluskey? I've seen episodes of Bounty Law. Mm-hmm. I have seen it. I wasn't, I, it was before my time. I was, it was, uh, I, I was young when uh, Bounty Law was even in reruns. Mm-hmm. However, I do have one kind of major connection, I think, to Rick mm-hmm. that kind of helped shape me uh-huh. as to who I am and actually brought it with me today. Oh, uh-huh. What? So- I went to uh, I went to Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, uh-huh. and uh, there I studied cinema, 
and studied editing. But this would have been basically anybody who went to film school in LA would have had the same assignment. We mm. all basically had the same assignment. When you're learning editing, and in those days we edited on moviolas, mm -hmm. and when we were learning editing, everybody did their bounty law. So, oh. like, if you went to you know LACC and you were in their film program, yeah, you would do your bounty law. Uh -huh. If you went to USC, you would do your bounty law. All those guys did their bounty laws. They would give you a scene from bounty law, and you would cut it, and on a moviola, on sixteen millimeter, black and white, like a dirty dupe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, as as if as they really cut bounty law back in the day. Yeah, because uh -huh. they cut that on uh, on moviolas. It's literally just one scene uh -huh. composed of twelve shots. Mm -hmm. And it was a shootout. Yeah, so there's yeah. like a shot of a barrel and a little gag, a little stunt gag that happens to the barrel. Uh -huh. And there's a guy that falls off of a, th of a horse. And there's like a, there's all this stuff that happens. Mm -hmm. And you're b mm -hmm. basically meant to create tension with the scene and then to cut it together to create a kind of uh, your own version. And tell a story. Yeah, exactly. And, and basically tell How would story. you juggle the footage? How would you juggle the footage? Are you going to try to milk it and keep it long? Mm -hmm. And, you know, how are you going to like punctuate the footage? And, and so I cut mine and I brought it today. I actually... Have my can't see it's Roger Avery Art yeah. Center uh -huh. project just here on uh, <laughs> films. It's black and white. Yeah, yeah, dupe. Uh -huh. yeah. Uh -huh. And so I very early on kind of didn't make me get into the show. To be perfectly honest, it, it was literally like uh -huh. you know, like eating glass to cut this thing because I had never used a moviola before. I, but I learned how to use a moviola. Yeah, literally doing uh, a bounty law. My bounty law. Uh -huh. My my scene from bounty law. Yeah. What I learned was that you kind of like lean into the moviola because yeah. it had a handbrake on yeah, it. Yeah. And so, you know, you're like running it and suddenly like Rick pulls his gun and you uh, you you hit your brake mm. at the right time. You know, you emotionally cut. Yeah. And then you, you know, cut to the other guy and getting shot or whatever. It didn't make me like this big fan. But when he passed away yeah. and we said we were going to do this episode, the first thing I thought of was, oh, wow. Like, I actually did a hey, I, I've I've worked with Rick Dalton yeah, in, in a, a weird in a, in a weird, weird way, kind yeah. of way. So you didn't see like a uh, 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 Fourteen Fists of McCluskey as a kid? Well, no, I'd seen Fourteen Fists of McCluskey as a kid, but I I liked the movie, and it wasn't. But it wasn't uh -huh. like I was like Rick Dalton. Like yeah, 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 he, he yeah, wasn't yeah. my big uh -huh. yeah uh, yeah, right, yeah uh -huh. um you know the, the the guy that I was really into. So that was like the good uh, early exposure to him. The second one is a little bit more dubious mm -hmm. <laughs> because. Uh, as you know, I was um, incarcerated yeah, yeah, for, uh -huh. for a while. And while I was there, at a certain point, I noticed that the branding for the mattresses, the bedding, the toothbrushes, the combs, the toiletries, the cleaning supplies, shower shoes, like all that stuff mm -hmm. was made by a company called Rick Dalton Company Incorporated. <laughs> and Rick had a company... <laughs> It made this shit, this like uh, prison supply stuff, uh, like yeah. prison uniforms yeah. and like jail blues mm. and, and oranges. Yeah. And um, and I was like, while I was there, I was like cursing his name. <laughs> Motherfucker, profiting. <laughs> like literally um, uh, like the little um, packets uh -huh. of uh, ketchup yeah, uh -huh. had like, you know, Rick Dalton Company Incorporated <laughs> written on them. I was like, what the fuck is this, man? <laughs> That would be like being in jail. It was like everything you have, like Bill Bixby Corporation presents. Yeah, exactly. It's like 
I'm sure he invested in this company. Uh, I looked it yeah. up after I got out. It's uh-huh. uh, based in North Carolina and with a uh, distribution uh, thing, I think, in Arizona somewhere. But like he- well, I'm glad Rick did well with his money. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's just one of the many investments he did. And it just was like, pissed me off because literally I got like you know, heat rashes and shit from those mattresses, those vinyl mattresses. So now, so now Gala, what is what? Is, uh, how much did you know about Rick before this weekend? Nothing as exciting as my dad. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Rick Dalton is more of a face than he is a person to me. If that makes sense, like mm-hmm. I, I can recognize him on posters because I mean, obviously, you have a giant poster of him hanging in yeah, your living room, yeah, yeah. and I stare at it when we watch movies. Well, I think when we saw Nebraska Jim, because there was a time Gala would just say like, "All old men look alike to her." <laughs> Old is a subjective term. Uh, yeah, yeah. At this point in yeah, my and life. so she'd be like, you know, I've seen you. you I've what s- you mean is all handsome men of a certain era. That era, all they all look alike. They're kind they of rugged, and yeah, yeah. I mean, know. they're very handsome for sure. Yeah. I mean, I've seen a few of his movies. Like, I had seen Grizzly. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. and I like Grizzly. Mm-hmm. Um, his character is kind of like not the most memorable one to me, but I mm-hmm. do like that movie. And then, of course, I've seen The Fireman. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I'm not a huge fan of the fireman sorry <laughs> i personally i like fireman part two wow that's and you the, have well, to call it one. you have to call one. it part two yeah 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 chapter two well because it begins like a second after no it like rocky it's like rocky two it's, yeah like or, the heartbeat, or, the heartbeat. or halloween two i actually found a uh an interview with rick from cinefantastique oh uh-huh and it was the one with Paul Schrader and Nastasia Kinski. Oh, yeah. It was around, around the time of Cat People. I have that issue. Yeah. <laughs> and the quote was, yes. quote, I was originally gunning for a young director named Rick Rosenthal because I loved what he did with Halloween 2. But I got to say, we dodged a bullet with that one because Cliff was the obvious best choice. And boy, did he light it on fire or what? <laughs> <laughs> and so I think, so obviously um, Rick Dalton, Saw and loved Halloween too. Yes, and that's why Donald Pleasance is in Fireman Two. I'm sure. Also, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also heard that uh, Rick had also wanted to be in. He wanted the Donald Moffat part in the thing. He didn't get it. Oh wow, that would but well, that would have been amazing. And I think that would have been like like I and you know I love Donald Moffat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was my neighbor. Yeah, yeah. But I, but I actually think Rick Dalton would have brought something really cool to that. I I can't even imagine how 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 awesome that would be. No, the thing is like in the case of like a uh, uh, Fireman Part Two. So he'd made a uh, so he'd made a deal with uh, Canon Pictures to do a, a a four picture deal, and so they went through the trouble of going back to Avco Embassy and buying the Fireman franchise. Oh, is that how that happened? Yeah, yeah. They 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 they, they spent the money. Well, that's when they were like flush. With, they were yeah, like the, no, absolutely. Like, like they, I I, I want to say American Ninja money, but it's probably before yeah, American Ninja money. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. breaking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And, and and Chuck Norris money. They had all that yeah. stuff, you know. And and all the Death Wish sequels are doing good. So they were, you know, th- that's when they were really flush with cash. And so they made a deal, a four picture deal, but one of them had to be uh, Fireman Two, maybe Fireman Three. We'll see what happens. But the thing about it was that was back when Golan Globus like had a tremendous amount of money and were happy to throw it at things. So. They were talking about Fireman Part 2 being a really, really big picture. And so then the best action director in Hollywood was Walter Hill. So they went to try to get Walter Hill to direct Fireman 2. And they offered him like more than he's ever been offered before, like a million and a half dollars. So much so that like he's forced to like consider it. So he gets together and has like lunch with Rick Dalton. 
And uh, and can you know Rick directed the first one, so Walter's like, well, why don't you just do the second one? He goes, I'm a guy, I don't want to be a director. I want to. Uh, I've now that we have the money to do this the right way, you know, I want to be the best fireman I can possibly be. I'd like somebody. I don't care about being a director. I only directed the first one because no one's going to care about it enough. But now that we've actually got the money, you know, wanted to get you know uh, uh, get a real director. So they didn't get Walter Hill. They offered it to Richard Flesher, that he was he was just working with Dino at that time. Yeah, he was just doing one thing with Dino. They offered it to Richard Donner uh, at Rick's. Donner, you would think would have. Uh, Richard Donner was it. doing the biggest movies in Hollywood at that yeah, time. Yeah, I mean, that's he true. can be pipe dream, l- l- lured to Canon to do a sequel to the Fireman. <laughs> uh. Uh-uh. But they did try to get Rick Rosenthal, who you're talking about. And they did even consider uh, George Bowers, the guy who uh, edited and directed uh, uh, Body and Soul, because they thought that was actually pretty good. But then, finally, uh, um, Rick goes, well, look, if we're not going to get Richard Flesher, and we're not going to get Walter Hill, and we're not going to get Richard Donner, then let's just let Cliff do it. I mean, it was like his action scenes and his fire scenes that made the first movie a hit anyway. And so I'll be there with the actors, and I'll be able to help him out as far as that's concerned. He can just do bigger more elaborate uh, uh, action scenes. And that's exactly what they do in Fireman 2. And and that's why I like Fireman 2 better than the Fireman is. Fireman 2, well, Fireman 2. The problem is is an origin story. And that's actually the inherent problem with the the Fireman is that you have to spend all this time setting it all up and building his thing. And it's it's setting up, it's like an origin story. You just jump right into it in Fireman 2, part 2. You are right. Fireman 2, they kind of knew what they were doing by the time they did Fireman 2. And now they had the money to do it. And they had the canvas to do it. You know, I mean, the environment one is like seven hundred, seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. Environment two is like a four million dollar movie. Yeah, yeah. All right, um, and it shows. Yeah, and it shows. Like, it, like he puts it all it on looks screen, like a Walter Hill movie. Yeah, <laughs> it looks like a cheapy Walter Hill movie. Yeah. Okay, but what it doesn't have, and it was a big part of the allure of the fireman, is the sleazy New York milieu. Yeah, it's the best thing about the movie. Yeah, is it captures that Times Square sleaziness just before it all got gentrified. Yeah, the dirtiness And, and Disney-fied, all right? Yeah. So it, before the Giuliani it, years came it's in. It's literally, you know, right along with, with you know, with Miss 45. It yeah. captures yeah, that yeah. New York sleazy vibe, like, to a T. So the whole move to Texas works. They make the move to Texas work. All the scenes of the Continental Club yeah. with the different Texas acts, that worked. Oh, but yeah, I do miss that New York milieu yeah. that the first film caught. But Jonah uh, Baker is great in the fucking sequel. Yeah. Well, and also, <laughs> I mean, if I, if there's one thing I like a, a little less from F- the Fireman Part Two, it's the the heavy use of POV. He's doing, <laughs> yeah, which yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, that uh, it's fine. I I, mean, I get it. Uh-huh. It's like, and that's in the time period. People are doing a lot of that. <laughs> yes, but he overuses it a little. He overuses it. <laughs> However, the the action scenes you just jump right in, and it's just like one scene after another. It's great. Okay, so. So now we're getting to the films that we actually watched for the show. And so, okay, so just for audience members out there, the whole idea is uh, uh, Rick Dalton became a star doing a, a late 50s, early 60s TV show called Bounty Law, where he played a, a, a bounty hunter. Uh, like a lot of other uh, young guys on television, uh, he was very, very popular and started doing some movies during his time off and then kind of had his period where he could have a movie career. Same thing happened with Doug McClure. Mm-hmm. Same thing happened with Ed Burns, with George Maharis. 
and all those guys actually ended up doing quite a few different movies. Did, but did they ever become a movie star? Not necessarily. Some guys did. James Garner did. Steve McQueen did. Clint Eastwood did. But most of the rest didn't. So the, that period of time was over. And then all of a sudden, you just saw, in the especially in the 70s, you saw Rick Dalton doing a lot of, uh, uh, you know, like William Shatner, just uh, guesting yeah. on a lot of people's uh, show. He also had a thing that happened with him, though. In the late sixties, where like three hippies kind of burst into, they were like bursting into his house, and they were tripping, and they had a gun with them, and his like uh his his stunt table basically beat the brains in of two of them, and Rick set the other one on fire with the flamethrower from Fourteen Fist and McCluskey. Well, I've heard about that. Yeah. yeah, actually, that's one of the great true crime LA stories that yeah. that's out there. Yeah, Gullah watches a lot of true I watch crime. watch a lot of true crime. So yeah, that's one of them. That became a thing, all right, because one, it was there's something kind of uh, attractive about uh, the star of Bounty Law killing a couple of hippies that broke into his house. <laughs> I'll make those, we'll teach those hippies they should pick the wrong fucking house to trip balls on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, don't wander into Rick's backyard. Those hippies picked the wrong house to trip fucking balls in that night. Uh, anyway, um, uh, so he kind of he got invited to like the Republican convention, all right, because he became this kind of like thing for the Nixon silent majority, mm. and he's a lifelong Democrat, but like he went, all right, and they fucking dug him. So <laughs> it's a gig. Rick was very <laughs> happy being dug. All right, hey, that's my audience. Yeah. <laughs> part of my audience. But they, you know, but they put him on uh, uh, Johnny Carson after that, and he was like a big hit on the Johnny Carson show, and then all of a sudden his TV shows actually the because of the notoriety. He started doing better TV shows. He went from like doing Land of the Giants and yeah. Green Hornet to yeah. doing like Mission Impossible. And and so one of the episodes that he got, which was one of his best episodes of uh, the 70s, is this uh, show called Cades County. That was Glenn Ford's uh, TV show that uh, brought him from movies to TV. This is one that I have a uh, the thing in the book. Okay, it's from the Herbie Gomez book. Uh, the Man Who Would Be Chapter Mc Six, yeah. The Man Who Would Be McQueen, uh, that mm -hmm. book? Yeah, and it's uh, Rick Dalton in the 70s. This is me reading from it. Rick Dalton literally started off 1971 with a bang when he shot a rocket out of a bazooka into an armored car in an episode of Glenn Ford's new TV series. After appearing in mediocre movies for the last four years, Glenn Ford decided to make the move to television. Soon, a lot of big movie stars of the 50s and 60s would move to series TV. Rock Hudson with Macmillan and Wife, Anthony Quinn with The City, Richard Widmark with Madigan, Tony Curtis with The Persuaders and McCoy, George Papard with Banachek. But Ford was officially the first, and he did it with a damn good show called Cade's County, which was a modern-day Western show where Ford played Sam Cade, a modern sheriff of a desert community called Madrid County. Where Madrid County was located, New Mexico, Arizona, California, was never clarified. The excitement of Glenn Ford headlining a TV series was the real deal. And the seasoned, charming man of action rose to the occasion. CBS put a lot of effort into bringing the movie star to the tube in style. The series had the best directors of the time, the best writers, and a gallery of big-name, high-priced guest stars, all playing colorful characters. Darren McGavin, William Shatner, Cameron Mitchell, George Maharis, and best of all, Rick Dalton. Dalton's episode, A Gun for Billy, is not only considered the best episode of this fondly remembered show, but it is also considered by many to be one of the best episodes of an action series of the 70s. It was one of those TV episodes that if you saw it when it aired, you never forgot it. Dalton played Billy Dobson, a man released from prison after serving 11 years. While serving time, Billy turned into a schizophrenic who thinks he's the Western outlaw Billy the Kid. 
The opening of the show gets my vote from most dynamic opening teaser of a dramatic TV series of the 70s, if not of all time, at least till Miami Vice. Billy, wearing period cowboy duds, crest on a horseback, singing to himself a little cowboy ditty. Oh, Lord, what a moaning. Oh, Lord, what a moaning. Oh, Lord, what a moaning. When the sun begins to shine. He dismounts his steed and removes from the back of his saddle what appears to be a long rifle or a buffalo gun wrapped up in a blanket. Then the camera cuts behind him, and we see Billy's on the hill, looking down to a modern empty road with a lone armored car moving in his direction. As he continues to sing to himself, he unwraps the blanket, but we don't see its contents below frame. Then Billy rises to a standing position and raises the weapon, only it's not a rifle, it's a bazooka. (laughs) Then he fires a rocket into the armored car, blowing a huge hole in its side and the damn thing right off the road. Then the outlaw mounts up and proceeds to rob the fallen armored car as if it were a stagecoach. And he rides off with $30,000. And this is such a good idea. I'm surprised no other writer has used it again or that nobody's tried it in real life. <laughs> Billy's plan is to get his wife back, High Chaparral's Linda Cristal, kill the man and put him behind bars, Close Encounters' Warren J. Kimmerling, and pull off a daring train robbery. However, upon arriving at his former wife's house, who wants nothing to do with him, he realizes he has a son she never informed him about, none other than pre-Tiger Beat stardom Leaf Garrett. So he snatches the boy and proceeds to live out the life of Billy the Kid, with Glenn Ford's Sam Cade hot on his trail. And by the time the two men meet in a Western showdown, this bonkers Billy the Kid thinks Sheriff Sam Cade is Sheriff Pat Garrett. I'm gonna get you, big casino. Billy Dobson is one of the best characters Dalton ever played and one of the best performances he ever gave. And A Gun for Billy is one of the best things he ever did. And Dalton agreed, telling me, the writer Tony Lawrence wrote a great character and Dick Donner directed the heck out of it. That opening shot with the bazooka is one of the best shots of my career. According to Dalton, him and Ford didn't get along so well on Hellfire, Texas. But five years later, that was all water under the bridge. And when Dalton's name was brought up for the role, Ford agreed it was good casting. And not only that, Doing the show with Glenn Ford made him a hero in the eyes of his wife, Francesca. She was positively thrilled to go out to dinner, the smokehouse, with the star of her favorite movie, Gilda, (laughs) and the man who married her hero, Rita Hayward. The episode was written by Anthony Lawrence, who also created the show for uh, um, Planet of the Apes. Mm. One of the best episodic TV writers in the business, and Lawrence was so impressed with Rick's performance that years later he would write another great character for him on the Kurt Russell, Tim Matheson NBC Western show, The Quest. A Gun for Billy was directed by none other than Richard Donner, six years before he'd do The Omen. Donner directed a lot of fun shows in the 60s and 70s, Man from Uncle, Banyan, but before The Omen, A Gun for Billy was his best work. Rick was sensational on the show, and after having a bad reputation in the 60s, he started developing a good reputation in the 70s. So we watched that episode of Gun for Billy, but like we talked about last episode with the Planet of the Apes movies, this was uh, two episodes of uh, of Cates County, which I think the only thing they had in common was Richard Donner was the director. Yeah, yeah, and then they also just had that little interstitial scene that they yeah, made yeah. in between. And then uh, just kind of uh, 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 put together and released as, with a new opening credit sequence and everything called The Marshal of Madrid that was sold to uh, TV syndicates. And also they did another one another Cades County movie called Sam Cade. And that's the video that I have. You get both in like in the nine hour mode, recorded in the nine hour mode. We we watched it, but we watched it either with a, 
buzz running through it or the the tracking off. Yeah, it was one. Of, you had your choice. It was either that sound throughout yeah. the whole thing or like a kind of crazy. So we listened to it with bad sound for like a while till we got sick of that. Then we watched it with bad picture for a while till we got sick of that, and we just kept yeah, just going back and forth. We just kept going back and forth. <laughs> Tonight, on the CBS Late Movie, Danger in Cades County takes many forms. Glenn Ford stars in The Marshal of Madrid. The citizens of Madrid County sleep soundly thanks to Sheriff Sam Cade, until he meets his match in an oil magnate with a heart as black as tar. You wouldn't shoot me, Sam. Meanwhile, young Billy only thinks he's Billy the Kid, and he has his sights set on Cade. It all leads to a Texas Fried Showdown. We better let the sheriff handle this. You move and I'll gut shoot you right where you stand, Chisholm. With Rick Dalton and James Gregory, the Marshal of Madrid. So what did you guys think of uh, uh, the Marshal of Madrid? I love the Marshal of Madrid, actually. I, I think it's great. And uh, I actually think Rick is really good in it. I mean, he does a really good performance. It's kind of a schizophrenic. He's, awesome he's playing this, a schizophrenic right? guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think it. I I totally agree with the book. I think it is one of his best performances, especially out of like what we've seen. Yeah, because uh-huh. we watched like five or six of his movies, yeah. and I think it's one of his better performances, if not the best of mm-hmm. the bunch. Yeah, and and uh, the, I think performance wise, yes, and, I mean, yeah. and the other Rick, Rick Donner, yeah. is doing an amazing job, mm-hmm. and it, like he's totally banging it out. Oh, we kept pointing out all the different shots oh, that he's just killing it. It's with. so efficient mm-hmm. what uh, Donner is able to do. How he will, you know, take a shot and just with a little shiny short mm-hmm. piece of track, yeah. create like four perfect shots you know, in between it or that crane day that he yeah, has yeah, at the yeah, bridge. Yeah, yeah. At the, at the, uh, the train tracks over yeah. the bridge, that crane, there's like, yeah. he does like all oh. this crazy camera. He's got it's a crane so for a day great. on a TV yeah, budget right, yeah, and yeah. man, he breaks it out and well, he's done a lot of TV by that time. He knew how to spend his time and spend it well. And that bazooka scene in the beginning. The bazooka scene is so great. I mean, it, that seems like the beginning of of a lethal weapon movie, yeah, because I had never seen Cade uh-huh. County, yeah, uh-huh. and uh, and so I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know that it was contemporary, yeah. Uh-huh. And so it starts yeah. off, and you know, it's like a western, and I'm like, okay, it's like uh, yeah. a, a Rick Dalton western, right? Yeah, yeah, like right, I'm yeah, watching yeah. Rick in a western, and he gets out, and then next thing you know, he whips out a mm-hmm. you know bazooka, and I'm like, what the and fuck there's a car, is this? and there's a car, yeah, and, and there's a like... car on a road, and I'm like, yeah. okay, what's going on here? It it's, really sells. There, there is one thing that uh-huh. I observed while watching this uh-huh. is that. Rick and Glenn Ford are almost never in the same scene together. Or, yeah, and, yeah. and even when they are in the same scene, you can tell they're two different sh- shots. Like yeah. it almost looks like a different film stock being used for that close up of him in the window. <laughs> and then the shot of Glenn Ford on the outside. Uh-huh. And there's a couple of clever uses of doubles going on there. Yeah. But it's almost like those two. Uh, giants didn't have to cross their wires and Rick could literally be treated like a star by, uh, by Donner. Absolutely. No, no, no. He was there. No, on the Rick Dalton days, it was all about Rick Dalton, you know, and on the Glenn Ford days, it was all about Glenn. And he's great with Leaf Garrett. That, yeah, with, with the, the chemistry kid. with Leaf Garrett is so good. It's, yeah. No, it's really, really good. No, they they play great together. They they they. In, play in really fact, good. that kid was so good. 
I didn't even know if it was Leaf Garrett. Even though I knew Leaf Garrett was in the show, I'd forgotten. Once we started, you are, mem- you are disrespectful to Leaf Garrett. I love uh, like yeah. I don't mean to be disrespectful to Leaf Garrett. Actually, you love, he but, is but he was in Tiger in, De- in Devil Times Five. He's magnificent in Devil Listen, Times Five. Leaf Garrett is great. Uh-huh. It's just that when I was growing up, he was my competition no, on the cover that. of every teen magazine. <laughs> so like, I get it, and get I'm not it. Leaf Garrett. I'm like the other kind of kid. <laughs> I I think that. The main actress in this is uh, Linda Crystal, right? Yeah, yeah. I think her chemistry with Rick is really, really good on screen yeah. because they're playing like a husband and wife and he's been away for a while and mm-hmm. he discovers that he has this son. And when they're on screen together, it's like really tortured. Yeah. And they have really good chemistry yeah. as like this couple that's been pulled apart by his schizophrenia. Yeah, no, you no, you could like you you see all the terrible time that she had with him, all yeah. right, just by the look on her face. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I love how they happy. dial in like the kind of piano music from the bar. Or oh whatever. yeah, no, no, that's a neat thing. I no, you, that's you, a great like thing that happens. It's a neat bit, and he and he helps sell it because yeah, he's got a different look in his eyes in this movie yeah, yeah, than yeah. he has normally. Like he's, yeah, well yeah, he's playing he, a, he's playing a fucking nut. Yeah, right? he's playing you know? a crazy guy, and he keeps trying to like instigate these Westworld kind of like gunfights. Yeah, and so when he goes in there and he starts doing his Billy the Kid <laughs> shit with this Westworld kind of thing going on, then all of a sudden he starts hearing the sounds of, of, of the of old a, west, of yeah. the old west. He Hears the sounds of a saloon or of a piano or the blacksmith you yeah. know working yeah, on that's right, the blacksmith. Actually, yeah the sounds of the horses like coming the, into town when the blacksmith thing happened i actually looked at my dad and i was like is he just like at knott's very far <laughs> <laughs> i thought he was hiding out like at the theme park like are there horses and stuff like are they just hiding like, in they this might have shot that at the haunted shack <laughs> and, uh, knott's very far because that's what it looked knott's like. very farm is gala's favorite yeah. uh, i love knott's very far <laughs> favorite amusement park there is a weird VHS thing. If you look up the Marshall of Madrid VHS on eBay, mm-hmm. you'll get like an individual tape of the Marshall of Madrid. But then when you read the back of the box, it's not the story. Oh, really? It's not the correct tape. And so you have to get the two movie version, oh, okay. which they do sell. And it doesn't look exactly like the box. Do uh, you think has. they're selling Sam Cade? You think it's the Sam Cade movie? I, I don't know if it's the sam cade movie yeah, maybe that's the one they're you know using. what i think it is the sam cade movie but they're calling it marshall of madrid oh, on man. the single box and so yeah. it's a little bit confusing so if you want the marshall of madrid tape make sure to get the two movies ah, the internet yeah. just fucks everything up <laughs> and i got mine i got mine for 9.99 on ebay Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm going to read again from um, Herbie Gomez's book, and this is on the chapter on uh, his TV series, Bounty Law. Right. 
Rick Dalton would get Bounty Law in 1959, but it would be a guest shot he did as Jesse James on Tales of Wells Fargo that caught the eye of executives as Screen Gems, the TV arm of Columbia Pictures, that paved the way for his own series. He was brought in for a proposed Western series called Bounty Law, playing a bounty hunter named Jake Cahill. While Screen Gems was hot for the laconic Missouri boy, they didn't just give him the role. He had to test for it, and as Rick told me, I better be fucking good. Dalton not only nailed the audition, but he also nailed the wardrobe test, the horse riding test, and the handling of pistol test. Ever since Rick was a little boy, he watched westerns. And when he watched westerns, he imagined being in those westerns. He imagined himself riding horses, shooting guns, wearing cowboy hats, and beating the tar out of owl hoots. And now, only five years after hitting the town, he was the star of his own cowboy show. Lash LaRue, Dalton's boyhood hero, would be proud. Rick was also clever enough to realize Bounty Law wasn't just some run-of-the-mill TV western. While at that time there seemed to be a never-ending line of cowboys parading across the tube, Bounty Law was different. The big difference being his character Jake Cahill wasn't a sheriff or a marshal or a Texas ranger or a drifting gunslinger. He was a bounty hunter. Up until that time when a bounty hunter showed up in a story, be it a movie or a TV show, they were usually portrayed as shady villains. But the television season before, from 58 to 59, four-star productions had launched a CBS show about a bounty hunter called Wanted Dead or Alive. The CBS series starred another sexy, slim young actor named Steve McQueen, playing a bounty hunter named Josh Randall. McQueen's program proved to change a pace from the standard cowboy show on TV, and his success was immediate. So Bounty Law was Screen Gems and NBC's attempt to jump on this bounty hunter bandwagon. Both Screen Gems and NBC saw Rick Dalton as a cross between Steve McQueen, over on CBS, and Ty Harden, star of Bronco, over on ABC. The biggest difference between Jake Cahill and McQueen's Josh Randall and Ty Harden's Bronco Lane was the producers allowed Dalton's bounty hunter to be a bit more morally questionable. Jake Cahill was still presented as the sorta good guy, if given the chance he'd rather take them in alive than dead, but his character veered closer to anti-hero status than any other Western show lead on TV at the time. And the anti-hero, slightly shady gunslinger was Dalton's favorite Western archetype. Burt Lancaster's smiling, laughing, black-clad bastard in Vera Cruz. Richard Widmark's bloodthirsty Comanche Todd in The Last Wagon. If given a choice between playing Wyatt Earp or Doc Holliday, Dalton would always choose Doc. Except these characters didn't star on TV shows. That week's guest star usually had those qualities, but not the series lead. But J.K. Hill possessed qualities that steered him closer to that type of characterization than the Lone Ranger straight arrow type that Clayton Moore and Chuck Connors specialized in. Screen Gems and the network NBC were hot enough on the series to launch it as a backdoor pilot on their popular series The Restless Gun, starring John Payne in an episode titled Epitaph for a Bounty Killer. But Bounty Law had another unique aspect when compared to the other Western shows on television. Most Western series starred two or even three cowboy leads on their show. And even when the odor only had one lead, he usually was backed by a cast of supporting characters. Bounty Law was different. It had no funny sidekick, no folksy old sheriff friend, no apple-cheeked school marm who's sweet on Jake. Just every week, Rick Dalton and that week's guest star, who was usually his antagonist. And Screen Gems provided Dalton a bevy of heavyweight, tough-guy familiar faces, all with bounties on their head to collect. James Coburn, Charles Bronson, Vic Morrow, Robert Blake, and Claude Akins. 
even former movie stars like Edward G. Robinson, Louis Hayward, and Douglas Fairbanks Jr., as well as current movie stars like Sammy Davis Jr., Ralph Meeker, Aldo Ray, Howard Duff, Darren McGavin, and Rory Calhoun. A lot of episodes consisted of Jake tracking down some murderous varmint or coming into a town and having to deduce who, among a bunch of suspects, was the man, or sometimes woman, he was looking for. The two most popular storylines on the show had Jake having captured a dangerous, crafty, desperate outlaw, having to get his prisoner to the hangman's noose without getting killed himself. Bronson, Coburn, Morrow, Lee Van Cleef, and Claude Akins all guest starred in tasty examples of this story. Or the storyline's opposite number. Jake has captured a fellow wanted for murder and is bringing him back to hang, but during the journey, but comes to feel that the man is innocent. So once they get to town, it's up to Jake to find the real murderer before his prisoner's hung. Robert Blake, Andrew Prine, Tom Laughlin, all guest starred in entertaining variations of this plot. I would like to read part one of a Q&A that I conducted with Rick Dalton back in 1999 at the Hawaii International Film Festival. So this is me asking questions to Rick. Privately ourselves, some alcohol was involved, some reefer was involved. But uh, we got down to brass tacks in 1999, actually in his backyard uh, of uh, his uh, ranch house that he had in uh, Honolulu. This is me. First off, Rick, thanks for sitting down and reminiscing with me about your career. <laughs> well, me remembering, that's the hard part. My memory ain't what it used to be, and that was never nothing to brag about. But as I always told my directors, I'll do my best. Well, let's start off at the beginning. Oh boy, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> so your first feature roles were guesting on the, uh, the TV series Tombstone Territory? Yes, it was. That was a good show, and it was pretty popular, so it was a big deal to land a featured part on it. Frankly, Quint, I was probably never more excited in my life. I was playing a cowboy. I had a cowboy outfit, a hat, a gun, a holster. I got to show off my fast draw. I start the show riding into town on a horse. Now later, I'd start every episode of my series riding into town on a fucking horse. But that first time, with the cameras rolling, whoa, baby. I was playing a real part. No character with a fucking name. I'll never forget it. Billy Clanton. Up until then, I was just like reporter number four, seaman number three, radio operator number one. And my character was critical to the story. The first time that happens, it's thrilling. But your next TV part, in one way, would be a step down. You're not a character with a name. You're a street gang member number four. But in another way, it was a step up because you're acting in a scene opposite Betty Davis Lee Marvin, and Robert Blake in Lee Marvin's uh, cop drama, M-Squad. <laughs> yeah, I played the fourth featured member of a black leather jacket street gang called the High Rollers. We're running a protection racket, and Miss Davis is the owner of a neighborhood candy store that refuses to pay. The High Rollers were James Darren as the leader, Sonny, Bobby Blake as second lieutenant, Buzz, the third guy was Ross Bagdasarian, who later changed his name to Dave Seville and created the cartoon characters, the Chipmunks. And I was high roller number four. I had three lines in that show, and one of them was, run! But I wasn't going to pass up an opportunity to act opposite Betty Davis and Lee Marvin. And when it came to Miss Davis, I was not disappointed. 
So we're doing this scene in Miss Davis's candy store, and the high rollers come in and try to shake her down. Jimmy Darren's the leader. He has the most lines. Bobby Blake has a few lines. Bagdazarian has a couple lines. I have one fucking line. You tell her, Sonny. But regardless of the fucking lines, I had one agenda. I was going to get as close to Betty Davis as I possibly could, or they'd let me. So when we did the rehearsal, I make my move and got right next to her. The rehearsal's over. I'm fucking positive the director's going to tell me, what the fuck you think you're doing, kid? Get your ass there behind Bagdasarian. And if he knew Bagdasarian's name, that's exactly what he would have said. But Miss Davis sees me, and she knows exactly what this punk kid young actor is doing. She fucking loves it. And she tells this TV hack, no, I like the kid here. He's threatening. He's giving me something to work off of. I want him to stay. Bobby Blake's jaw hits the floor. He can't believe what he's hearing. The director tells Miss Davis, but, but, but he can't stand there. And she says, why not? And he says, because he's blocking your light. And she says, move the fucking light. And she says, fucking. <laughs> and you know what they did? They moved the fucking lights. Bobby Blake wanted to wring my neck. <laughs> he's thinking that could just as easily be me standing next to Betty Davis. <laughs> and while they're moving the light, Miss Davis looks at me, gives me a little smile, and with the four fingertips of her right hand, touches the back of my hand and tells me, well done. You know, half the glory of having a Hollywood career is having good Hollywood stories to tell. And I never get tired of telling that one with Miss Davis, especially to young actors. And I asked, well, you mentioned you worked with Robert Blake back then. You also acted with him on one of my favorite Berettas. Were the, were the two of you friends? On and off. When I first met Bobby, I wasn't starstruck like I was when I met James Cagney. But I was sure impressed. You see, I grew up at a time when... You were a kid on the weekends. Your parents dropped you off at the local movie house and you watched the Cowboys for a nickel. That's what we called it. We didn't say we were going to the movies. We said we were going to go see the Cowboys. And my absolute favorite was Lash LaRue. But I also liked the Cisco Kid, no matter who played him. I liked Buck Jones because he looked like he'd fuck you up. And I liked Ken Maynard. But I dug his brother Kermit Maynard even more because Kermit played a Mountie. And for whatever reason, I always dug the red uniform of the Canadian Mounties. But what I hated about the Cowboys was their goofy fucking sidekicks. I mean, if these guys were so cool, why did they hang around these fucking idiots? Smiley Burnett? Guy was a fucking spaz. They were all a bunch of fucking losers. It didn't make any sense. If you're going to get in as much trouble as these Cowboys did, why have a fucking ineffectual idiot as your sidekick? I mean, at least have somebody who can help out in a fucking fist fight. Well, there was one sidekick who wasn't a loser or an idiot who wasn't a useless waste of space and was right in there pitching when the going got tough. One sidekick who saved the cowboy more times than the cowboy saved him. And best of all, for us little kids, he was a little kid, like us. Red Rider's sidekick, Little Beaver. We all thought Little Beaver was as cool as it was possible for a kid to be. And when Bobby was little, he played Little Beaver. And when I was little, I even knew Bobby Blake's name. That's how much I dug Little Beaver. So now, my first year and a half in Hollywood, I'm doing a scene with the cat that played Little Beaver and Betty Davis and Lee Marvin? Now, that was a great letter back home to my folks' day. 
I told them, tell everybody I grew up with. And then me and Bobby become friendly? We go out and get a beer together after work? Yeah, to me, that was making it in Hollywood. Are you fellas still friends? I love Bobby. We haven't seen each other since I moved to Hawaii, but that doesn't mean shit. That's how real friends are. I'll love Bobby till the day I die. He got me on a Beretta, and not just any Beretta, but a good one with a really good role. And he got me an episode of his show, Helltown, at my full rate, too. Hell of a good cat. Great actor, too. He's the one who should have been a fucking movie star. The no shit power of that guy. And Bobby wasn't Hollywood tough. He was badass motherfucker tough. Well, I know what you mean, but describe Hollywood tough. The rest of us punch some guy in a restaurant. They break it up in a minute and we talk about it for the rest of our lives. Bobby will knock your front teeth out and bust your jaw on a busy street corner across the street from the fucking police station. Well, somebody else you worked a lot with back in the early days and even in one of your last movies was Charles Bronson. Now, I dated uh, Charlie Bronson's daughter, uh, Katrina, for a little bit. So I met him once when she invited me over to have dinner at his house and he was really nice, but he was a really old dude back then. I heard back in his day, he was famous for being prickly. Prickly. Does that mean prick? Well, not exactly, but it does suggest he was hard to get along with. How did you get along with Charlie? Uh, A little better than most. That was good as some. Uh, The thing about Charlie is you were always going to do more talking with him during whatever scene you two were doing than sitting around on the set shooting the breeze in between takes. And that's even in movies where Charlie was playing an Indian. (laughs) Some people thought he was an asshole, and he could be an asshole. But if you didn't judge Charlie for being Charlie, you could get along with him, and he'd appreciate it. But there were two Charles Bronsons. I knew him at first when he was with his first wife, Harriet. In those days, you could actually go out to dinner with him. Not often, but every once in a while. You know, he takes Harriet. In my case, I took whoever I was screwing on location. We did that a couple of times on Comanche Uprising. But after he married Jill Ireland... You can fucking forget that shit. He didn't want any fucking guy anywhere near her. He stole her from David McCullum, and he was going to make goddamn sure nobody stole her from him. Back then, I thought his territorial guard dog bullshit about his wife was fucking nuts. But since then, being married to a beautiful woman these last 20 years, maybe Charlie knew what he needed to do, and he didn't give a fuck what anybody else thought. So you got your start in features with one of my favorite directors, William Whitney. Wild Bill Whitney. Hell yeah. In my opinion, William Whitney is one of the most underrated action directors in the history of Hollywood. I believe you are correct, sir. Now, there isn't that much critical writing out there about William Whitney, but I did find an issue of uh, Films in Review from 1974 that had a piece on Whitney. And the piece starts, What Hitchcock is to the suspense film, Lubitsch is to sophisticated comedy, and Ford is to the epic western, William Whitney is to the action film. No doubt about that. Glad to hear Bill getting some recognition. He deserves more. So your first feature role was for Whitney. Yep. A Strange Adventure. Starred Ben Cooper, who along with John Derrick was the leaving juvenile star at Republic Pictures. Bill did about five flicks with Cooper. It was a desperate hours, petrified forest kind of thing. You know, three crooks on the lamb, Jan Merlin, Maria English, Nick Adams. Take some innocent people hostage. In this case, a young hot rod racer played by Cooper and a brother and sister played by me and Joan Evans. Now, I was pretty excited to get this because, you know, before this, I'd only done little bit parts and features. You know, no character with a name. This was my first name in a movie. Luther Donegan. 
Now, the part I got wasn't the one I wanted. I wanted the Nick Adams bad guy punk part. I don't want to be one of the gangsters. But back then, you could practically call that the Nick Adams part. So naturally, Nick Adams got it. So I got the part of the dickless hostage brother. Nevertheless, I was still to have this big a part in a real Hollywood movie, even if the guy was a wimp. But the best part was the way Bill, Whitney, and I vibed. And at one point, Bill comes up to me and says, look, I know you're kind of playing the dickless wonder in this, but you're doing a good job. I appreciate it. And hang in there. Coming up, I'll find something else for you. It'll be better suited to your talents. So he brings me in for a couple of things from a public that don't pan out. Straight man, love interest to Judy Canova in one of her corn-pone comedies. Jesus, can you imagine doing your first kissing scene in a picture with Judy fucking Canova? Well, actually, when I was a kid, I kind of had a crush on Judy Canova. <laughs> well, as they say, Quentin... To each his own. So anyway, uh, just before Republic goes belly up, they make a series of cheapy juvenile delinquent pictures. And Bill brings me in for one of them called Young and Wild. I don't get it. Scott Marlowe does. Then Bill brings me in for another one called Juvenile Jungle. I don't get it. Corey Allen does. Then he brings me in for Drag Race No Stop. That one I get. But Ben Cooper, John Derrick, and Scott Marlowe have to turn it down before they let me have it. But Bill true blue fucking cat that he is, was pushing for me all the way with the suits and that fuck Herbert J. Yates. So listen, five years after I hit town, Bill Whitney makes me a leading man. See, that's a debt you can't repay. I think Drag Race No Stop is a sweet little picture. It's a little uneventful. I win the big race. Yeah, like you didn't see that coming. Uh, but for my first lead, it wasn't bad. What you call uneventful, I call defying conventions. It's a drag race movie, and I win the race at the end. How is that defined conventions? Okay, yes, you win the race at the end, but everything else is so low-key. It's practically anti-genre. They don't try to kill you. The sheriff doesn't railroad you into a chain gang. They don't try to frame you for somebody's murder. Nobody gets killed in a car crash. What are you talking about? Big Joe totally fucks up my car. Well, not like they could have. I mean, they don't fuck up the engine. They just bust some glass and mess up your paint job. What, I should thank him for that? But it's nothing Ruby can't fix. You're still able to run the big race. Of course I'm going to run the big race. It's a fucking race car movie. I was just surprised, especially considering the genre, its lack of melodramatic elements. I mean, it reminds me a bit of a 70s Jonathan Demi film. Who's that? He's the guy who did Silence of the Lambs. You thought it was like Silence of the Lambs? <laughs> No, I didn't think it was like Silence of the Lambs. But before he did Silence of the Lambs in the 70s, he did these humanistic little comedies that explored different aspects of Americana, Citizens Band and Melvin and Howard. Their identifying trait is their humanity. Like Drag Race No Stop, they have a gentle quality to them. Citizens Band? You mean like CB Radio? Yes, the film was about the CB craze in the 70s. Who's in it? The guy from American Graffiti, Paul Lamont. In fact, actually, he's the star of both of them. Never saw him. Well, I really like the actress who played Ruby, uh, Sheila Carroll. She's also in Monty Hellman's Beast of the Haunted Cave. Uh, uh, do you remember her? Of course I remember her. We had a little thing together. Yeah, uh, yeah she was a real sexy something something. I always thought she was kind of a barfly Veronica Lake. <laughs> yeah, a garbage pal Veronica Lake. Yeah, that's a good way to describe her. <laughs> She only did a few movies. Yours, uh, Beast from the Haunted Cave, 
ski troop attack, something else, and then she disappeared. Do you know what happened to her? Oh, fuck if I know. And you work with Bridget Masters, who's another William Whitney regular. She's in that episode of Bounty Law that he directed that's like a remake of Stagecoach. Did you think it was weird that even though she's the love interest, you two never even kiss in the movie? <laughs> Only on screen, brother. <laughs> Off screen, we did a hell of a lot more than kiss. <laughs> like, there was a lot of cute girls on Netflix. <laughs> Me and John Ashley, we fucked them all. When it came to that part of Mag Wheeler, it came down to me and Robert Conrad. Bill liked us both. He ended up directing the pilot episode of The Wild Wild West. We were both good-looking, handsome, arrogant, cocky guys. So we were up for a lot of the same parts in the early days. I got this one. He got Pretty Boy Floyd and Young Dillinger. Bill ended up choosing me over Bob for three reasons. One, I was better looking. Two, I was taller. It wasn't hard to be taller than Bob Conrad. And three, I had a better pompadour. What did you uh, think of Bob Conrad? Oh, Bob was okay. He's a guy you hear a lot of stories about. Some of them probably true. But the thing about Bob is he was short. And he fucking hated how short he was. And because he was a little guy, he had a hard-on for the world. You heard of that expression, Napoleonic complex? Well, Napoleon had nothing on Robert fucking Conrad. Somebody once said, God made people short, at least they rule the world. Well, whoever said that was talking about Bob Conrad. But Quint, it was different back then. Guys like myself and Bob worked a lot and we worked with a lot of people. And you can't like everybody. And if Bob robbed you the wrong way and he rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, you probably hated his fucking guts. And sometimes he was right and sometimes he was wrong and sometimes he was out of line and sometimes I'm sure he was a monster. But sometimes I was right and sometimes I was wrong and sometimes I was out of line and sometimes I was a monster. That happens when you work as hard and as long as we did with as many people as we did. But the cats who dug him, John Ashley, Nick Adams, Don Stroud, they fucking loved the guy. Bill Whitney loved him. I'll tell you this about Bob. I always respected him. Bob had one of the most successful careers anybody's ever had in television. He started in as many TV series as anybody's ever started in, and every fucking series Bob was in charge. On the Bob Conrad show, the only person you had to please was Bob Conrad. What do you think of him as an actor? <laughs> well, he basically played the same part, a cocky motherfucker. But if you're casting a cocky motherfucker, you ain't gonna do better than Bob Conrad. <laughs> he played Nick Carter once, and I'm a big Nick Carter fan. I read a bunch of the Nick Carter books. But he was fantastic. He was a good neck cover, probably the best. But where Bob was fantastic was in Centennial. As the French fur trapper, Pascanal, fucking fantastic. They wanted Bobby Blake for that part. He turned it down and they gave it to Bob. Bobby told me for the rest of his life, whenever Bob saw Bobby, he always said, thank you, thank you, thank you for turning that down because of you turning it down, I got the best role I ever had. Nobody on TV could have done that role better than Bob. Going back to William Whitney... You starred in his second-to-last feature, I Escaped from Devil's Island, with Jim Brown. Now, I think my best uh, theatrical film of uh, the 70s. But in the films and review piece, it suggests Whitney didn't care for it. He described it as a sickeningly brutal movie. I Escaped from Devil's Island was released in 1973. Bill first started directing at the end of the Depression. It was a generational divide. Okay, for instance, none of these old-timers, Whitney, Ford, Hawks, understood Peck and Paw. They didn't understand the blood, the nudity, the foul language, because they didn't want to understand. Because it was part of the world they spent three decades making movies in. But the truth is, Bill was a master of shooting violence. But he didn't consider what he shot violence. Violence is what Sam Peckinpah did. 
what Don Siegel did. Bill would say he shot action. But in movies, action is just a euphemism for violence. The climax of his Roy Rogers pictures are fucking violent as hell. And those movies weren't rated R. They were made for kids on the Saturday matinee circuit. All I'm saying is he was an old dude and he didn't get it. But that was a tough picture for Bill. His wife, Maxine, died back home while we were on location in Mexico. They met in the late 30s. She was an actress at one of his serials. It was good. He had a couple of uh, old friends around, like uh, Jan Merlin and myself. So you did your first William Whitney film with Jan Merlin, and 30 years later, your last film with Whitney was with Jan Merlin. Yep. Terrific actor. And it was on that picture that you met Jim Brown. Oh, I met him a couple times before that at parties and shit, but I didn't know him until I did the picture with him. What do you think of Jim Brown? I love him. Straight up solid cat. The single straightest shooter I ever worked with and one of the straightest shooters I ever met. If Jim Brown said the sky was brown, then I guess the sky must have turned brown because Jim just said it. And if you ask Jim to be somewhere, like be at some event at four, if Jim said yes, you damn well better be there Sunday at four because if Jim said yes, he will be there. Of all the actors I ever worked with, Jim was the one I approached to star with me when I directed my first movie. And when Jim said yes, God bless him, that's when we knew we were going to get a movie made. Also, when I was writing the script about police brutality and corruption in inner city New York City, I took Jim out to lunch and asked him what he knew about it. He told me so much, most of which made its way into uh, the movie. I wanted to make Jim a producer. He refused. He said, this is your thing. It'll be looked at differently if it's our thing. One, if it's our thing, I want to play the fireman and you play the fucking cop. (laughs) But his point was, he wants the world to know that this was my thing. And he was working for me. By refusing a producer credit at that stage, he said goodbye to a bunch of money when we became a hit. Not only did Jim not give a damn, he was also happy for me. As I said, try fucking shooter. So that is part one of my Q&A with Rick Dalton. We'll go back for part two and maybe even part three and part four as the show goes on. But for right now, so you were talking about, uh, Roger, you were talking about like uh, you had a favorite Bounty Law episode? Well, yeah, you know, I I have seen Bounty Law uh-huh. and like uh, I've seen a couple of episodes, a number of episodes actually. But uh, in preparation for this, I went through and I just wanted to, you know, catch up and watch a few. And one jumped out at me that was from the fourth season. I think it's from the fourth season. Uh-huh. And I think it's pretty late in the fourth season also. Mm-hmm. The reason I wanted to watch it is because it gets starred Ross Martin. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And I love Ross Martin. Yeah, he, yeah. He was in- Artemis uh, Gordon. Yeah, Artemis Gordon from Wild Wild West. And my mom was Ross Martin's uh, physical therapist. And so oh. as a boy, I knew Ross Martin a little bit. Uh-huh. And so I've always been a huge Ross Martin fan. Like, yeah, yeah, whatever yeah. he's in. And so- when I saw that he had done a bounty law, I was like, oh, I, w- I want to mm-hmm. check that one out. And so Gala found it for me and I watch it and it's called uh, Incident with the Photographer Who Killed His Wife's Lover. <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually kind of a cool episode because um, 
Ross Martin plays Edward Mwybridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. The uh, the guy who... The guy um, filmed, like, uh, and, horses. Yeah, oh, this, and yeah. what happens in the episode is uh, a representative for Leland Stanford, who was, like, at that time, the richest man west of the uh, Mississippi, mm. uh, basically goes to uh, Rick to get him to... F- Find and bring uh, Edward Mybridge back to California before the other bounty hunters can get him. Mm-hmm. He's killed his wife's lover mm-hmm. and then gone on the run. And Stanford, in the meantime, is trying to solve this mm-hmm. puzzle that yeah. he's got. And it plays throughout the episode. They talk about it, mm-hmm. where do a horse's feet all touch the ground at the same time? Uh-huh. Or, you know, or is there ever a moment where the horse's uh, feet are off, are completely mm-hmm. off the ground? And so Edward Mybridge had been hired by Stanford because he was a photographer of, mm-hmm. uh, of big vistas and everything like that. And he was hired to go to Palo Alto, which uh, was a horse ranch at that time. Mm-hmm. To experiment with this. And so he developed this photographic technique of taking a picture of the horse as Mm -hmm. it was running. And then uh, he developed a machine that would then Mm -hmm. put it all together. And we had an early version of motion pictures. Yeah. Even before the Lumiere brothers. Uh Uh-huh. And there's actually a little bit of an argument. I've had arguments with Terry Fermo yeah, about yeah, who uh, invented uh, right, cinema. Yeah, uh, and he's uh, like, well, Lumiere Brothers. And I'm like, motherfucker, what about Edward Mybridge, a Californian? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and so in this episode, he and Ross Martin and Ro- and Edward Mybridge is like this kind of, I don't want to call him a hippie, but he's like um, like a, a hermit kind of looking guy. Like, he, yeah. he, he, you know, despite the fact that he's like a respected photographer, he dresses in like these dirty clothes and has long hair. Mm-hmm. And he's like this kind of crazy, semi-crazy character. Mm-hmm. And what's happened is uh, Stanford has set him up mm-hmm. while he's developing this camera technique. Mm-hmm. And the guy discovered that this, his wife was mm-hmm. sleeping with another man and he uh-huh. killed him uh-huh. and then had to go on the run. And Stanford's like, well, I got to finish my thing. <laughs> I got to know this because it was a bet he had with some other billionaire yeah, or yeah, millionaire yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. at the time. And so Rick is the one who gets him and brings him back. And uh-huh. it's mostly the two of these guys, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as they're- Well, kinda, that's a, that sounds like most family life. Yeah. It's like yeah. the two of these guys and they're on the run and they have like a couple of little encounters and, mm-hmm. you know, the, it, it's it's a it's a great episode. It's really an interesting episode. And I love how it touches on real history. Oh, no, I love how it touches on real history. Most good bounty law episodes are like Rick and like a really good guest star because it's usually just them. Yeah. And, and it was like a different kind of guest star because he's not yeah. trying to take him to be executed. He's yeah, trying yeah. to take him back mm-hmm. to avoid prosecution. Right. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, so it's yeah. kind of a, and it was like an interesting twist on the kind of. It's like know, a moral twist also. For it's Rick. a moral twist. And there's a bunch of, and they talk about that. I really did, liked it. did you watch any of the episodes? Uh, I watched that one with my dad, which yeah. I really enjoyed, but mm-hmm. we only watched that one. I've seen like every now and then because mm-hmm. my dad on our hard drive has like a bunch of random TV uh, episodes, like all misfiled. Yeah, it's all and misfiled. so every now and then, like I'll catch a Bounty a Lot episode. Mm-hmm. I think they're fun. Uh-huh. It's not something that, like, personally, I'm going to binge watch, like, mm-hmm. all of them. And it's before your time. Yeah, it's, it's a little before my time, but I still enjoy it. It's like one of those shows that, like, you turn the lights off, you grab a snack, you put your feet up, mm-hmm. and, like, you watch an episode, and it makes you feel good before you go to bed. Well, actually, well, it's fascinating how much storytelling they're able to do in a half an hour, actually. 22 minutes you know uh, i mean it's the, actually kind of crazy the stories how, have a, how efficient they move, are they move along really the fast. stories have a beginning middle and end and they're only like 22 minutes but they 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 have a whole situation they they get it across uh there's a zillion things they could do they do the simplest thing all right but like again as long as you have like i mean when you're you know when you're dealing with you know uh uh rick dalton and james coburn or you know, rick dalton and uh, vic morrow i mean it's gonna be fucking great Herbie has some of his different episodes. 
he has the names of them. I remember. I remember the, my favorite ones though. One of them, a favorite one, is because uh, uh, Stage Bound for Tucson, and it's uh, Darren McGavin is uh, the guest. Oh, I love Darren. Oh, Darren, McGavin. he's fucking great on these. Yo, he's 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 great on any of these shows that he he, he shows up on. He's like you know he's the man, and. Uh, Jay Cahill has got a, a guy named Big Bill Shelley. He's got an uh, outlaw that he's bringing in They're on the stage bound for Tucson. And also on the stage is the legendary gunfighter Tom Horn, played right. by Darren McGavin. Yeah. And so. Not played by yeah, Steve not McQueen. Si- not played by <laughs> Steve McQueen. Before <laughs> Steve McQueen played him, he was a character in this. And so at first they come across like they're going to be friendly. Uh, Jay Cahill totally knows who Tom Horn is. But then at some point, Tom Horn ends up <laughs> killing Jake's prisoner. Oh. And he's like, okay, but it's okay. He's wanted dead or alive. Okay, we're going to split the bounty when we get to Tucson. And then Jake's like, we're not going to split the bounty. That's my, It's my bounty. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm the one that caught him. Yeah, just because you shot him dead doesn't mean <laughs> yeah. that uh, we're splitting. And he goes, uh, yeah, okay, but look, I'm going to tell the Tucson sheriff that we're partners in there. Who do you think he's going to believe? Well, he's going to believe me. Okay, let me explain something to you. I don't know what you think about Apaches, but I can tell you what people of Tucson (laughs) think of Apaches. They don't like them. And I'm the guy who caught Geronimo. (laughs) So who do you think they're going to (laughs) believe? You or me? Yeah, so uh, Tom Horn ends up winning. But then there's like a nice twist at the very, very end, at the tag, at the epilogue tag. There's a nice twist, which I won't reveal. Okay. In case you uh, get a chance to see the episode. But it's really, it's a really, it's a real funny twist at the end. Um, but then there's also a really, really good one that was, uh, it's like a two-parter. And it was directed by Joseph H. Lewis, who directed uh, Gun Crazy. Okay, yeah. And it's called Incident in Park. Oh, Gun Crazy is great. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and he's direct- super visual. Yeah, and, well, he, yeah, he's a terrific director. He also did a lot of really good uh, um, riflemen. He did a lot of really good riflemen. So as was well. he a TV director before he did Gun Crazy? Like he must- well, no, there wasn't TV when he did Gun Crazy. Right. He's a B movie director. No, he was okay, just a yeah. B movie director. But you're right, though. Literally doing the little do movie serials, which would be the equivalent right. of a TV show. So he started off doing like Eastside Kids. Right. And, you know, like a Charlie Chan. But he did an episode called uh, Incident in Parkertown. Mm-hmm. And it's about a, a black municipality. It's like a town that's basically just, uh, uh, it's a black town. And uh, Jake comes in and he knows the sheriff. The sheriff's played by uh, Sammy Davis Jr. Mm-hmm. And they've captured this like really dangerous white bank robber played by Vic Morrow. Yeah. But they got to get him out of this town before his gang comes in and tears the town apart. So they have to make up a little posse made up of uh, some of the black residents of the town. And they asked uh, Jake to go along with them. But one of the, the posse members is in, she did two dramatic TV roles. This is one of two she did. Dorothy Dandridge, hmm. the black right. actress, Dorothy Dandridge. And she so she did this episode of uh, 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 Incident in Parkertown. And that's got a surprise ending at the end of it. It's a really uh, fun episode. And it's a two-parter too. So before we get into uh, 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 talking about Manhunter, mm-hmm. there's this part in the Gomez book that <laughs> I just, I really like this because it made me think uh, really, uh, uh, it's a nice thing about Rick and his career and just Rick and his life and stuff. It's talking about after the whole flamethrower incident at the house, he was invited on The Tonight Show. Dalton made his first appearance on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson in 71. Rick proved a big hit in Johnny's chair. 
both Johnny and the audience liked him. Johnny always had a slight deference to people who were stars before he was. Turns out Johnny was a Bounty Law fan. And Carson had him back whenever he had something to promote. And soon, Dalton could be seen sitting behind a desk surrounded by Paul Lynn, Wally Cox, and Charlie Weaver on the Hollywood Squares, playing guessing games on Password and the $20,000 Pyramid, bowling spares on Celebrity Bowling, horsing around and filling in blanks with Richard Dawson, Brett Summers, and Charles Nelson Riley on Match Game, and acting cute with the other Hollywood couples on Burt Convy's Tattletales, where Francesca, with her ditzy Italian shtick, was a big hit. And for the rest of the decade, Rick could be seen on the couch of Mike, Merv, and Diana, yucking it up with Henry Winkler, Ben Vereen, Joe Namath, Brenda Vaccaro, and Nanette Fabre. The end result of all this horsing around was, to a large degree, Rick Dalton enjoying his Hollywood career in a way he never had up until then. He could still get movies from time to time, but he knew he'd never be a movie star. He'd never do as good as McQueen or Burt. Frankly, he'd be happy to do as good as William Shatner or Robert Culp both actors who were serious draws on TV movies, as Burt and Steve were in theatrical films. But with that realization came an inner peace that had eluded Rick his whole career. But not just a feeling of inner peace, but a sense of humor about himself that was completely absent in the first half of his career. And you can see it when he flirts with Diana, or teases Merv, or just plain has fun on Match Game and Tattletales. Rick was finally having fun being a TV star. And that's a nice little story, I think, about him. (laughs) stars Harry Gardino William Watson Bo Hopkins William Shallard Tonight's episode Death on the Run So the second uh, uh, film that we watched is his TV movie pilot for his second series which was a Quinn Martin series uh, called Manhunter and the uh, movie stars Rick, who's the star, Gary Lockwood, yeah. uh, Stephanie Powers, a magnificent James Olsen, and <laughs> yeah. and Tim O'Connor, and Tim O'Connor, yeah, yeah, from I Battlestar love Tim Galactic. O'Connor. Yeah. You know, I love Tim O'Connor. And he's very good on the show. I was so excited when he showed up. No, and he's on Battlestar Galactic. It's actually Buck yeah. Rogers. Yeah, yeah, Buck Rogers. Yeah, that's what Buck he Rogers. is. Buck yeah. Rogers. And let me read. Uh, this is from the back of the uh, Manhunter box. An ex-Marine returns home from China in 1933 and is challenged to search for a notorious gang of bank robbers and killers, headed by his sister. Okay, <laughs> this is this is not me reading it. Yeah, badly. it's just badly it's written. Just badly written. <laughs> Hardened by his experiences in battles abroad and with a vengeance to uphold the law, this manhunter, played by Rick Dalton, wages a new kind of war at home. Gary Lockwood and Stephanie Powers of Heart to Heart fame also headlined the cast in this stylish period detective drama. Lockwood and Powers play a pair of romantic but ruthless Bonnie and Clyde-type crooks who, with their accomplices, clean out banks and manage to evade the police. 
Dalton must use all his war-taught resources, along with reminiscences from his sister's ways to track the cunning gangsters. This has nothing. There's no sister. <laughs> well, no, he doesn't. Doesn't he have a no, sister? No, but not a sister who's a famous bank robber. Oh, no, no. Uh, that, a famous that, bounty hunter. They're, they're, they're just him his, they're making it up ways. as an AI wrote that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, someone who never saw the Yeah, the getaway pilot. chases are fast, fun, and furious in this rollicking adventure movie from <laughs> Worldwide Home Video. Well, it is rollicking. It is. It has a great and rollick to it. And it is fast it. and furious. Yeah. And it is fast and furious. It's got a great cast. Well, it's got Gary Lockwood in it, and I love Gary Lockwood. I love Even Gary Lockwood. this is later Gary Lockwood. Gary, he, I like this later Gary Lockwood. Well, I like this and slightly Rick are, gone to seed Gary Lockwood. Yeah, I like him slightly gone to seed, and he and, and Rick are kind of cool. Like, uh, Well, no, no, they're good. No, no. By, look, by man. Manhunter, part of the thing that's defined about Rick is he's about like 20 to 15 pounds heavier than he was, yeah. you know, in his younger movie days. But he looks good that way, actually. He looks good that way. He doesn't look quite as gone to seed as Gary Lockwood does, but they both, they're still in the cool zone together. When he, like, you can imagine Rick playing the Gary Lockwood part if he wasn't the star of the series. Oh, no, actually... That's actually totally what I was thinking is that that part was good enough for Rick. I like it when Rick first shows up yeah, yeah. that he's wearing like that World War One yeah. uniform yeah, uh -huh. and he looks really cool in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah he yeah, looks yeah. really slick in it. Yeah, it's he like did, a, yeah. he actually. He well, carries... by the way, that, that's a great shot. That first uh, crane shot. Yeah, yeah. All right, where the gangsters are leaving and it goes down to the bus and you see Rick in, 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 in the window of the bus and yeah. they, in his uniform. Yeah, like it's like the the camera's moving and the bus is moving and yeah. it does like well, a close up the, in yeah, the you bus see the, you and see then the... it cranes up or something. Yeah, well, you see the gangsters leave the gas station just as the bus comes That's pulling right. in. Yeah. He's pulling in as the bad guys as leave, they're leaving. leaving out. I mean, it's a, it's a really good, compelling episode yeah. also because- they, It's I mean, a great storyline. It, it could stand alone as a movie and like you could tell me there was no TV show and I'd be 100% satisfied with this episode yeah. as a movie. And he's also- If the action scenes were more bloody and more like balls yeah. to the wall, it would be a it would be terrific. And it's also kind of in his wheelhouse, though he's yeah. not a bounty hunter. He is he's a, a man. Hunter. He's a man hunter. He's, he's, he's a bounty hunter. He's being bad. You, well, you call it a reward, but he's still making a lot of money. Yeah, it's a, and he's doing it for money I at a certain it, point. I guess it is about- because he goes into the mail, the post office all the time, and he's yeah. pulling off the yeah, uh, no, those are handbills. Yeah. Those are handbills he's taking. Yeah, that's right. I'm gonna get this guy next, Quentin. You told a really nice story when we were watching this about how Rick chose to play this straight, and oh, about yeah. how when you're a lead actor on a show, you want to let your guest stars. Yeah, be. I loved that story. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's uh, no, it was really interesting because. Uh, Quinn Martin, I mean, Rick was very, very excited to be like doing a show produced by Quinn Martin, who was one of the biggest producers in town. And he had acted in guest roles in different Quinn Martin shows. And one of them that he acted in was a really good episode of uh, the Burt Reynolds show, uh, Dan August, The Law. Oh, yeah. Rick and Bird had worked together uh, like on Riverboat before, and they, you know, they'd done a few things together. So now they're, they're doing this episode of Dan August. And so in between the show, he's talking to Bert and he's watching how Bert's playing the role and he's not playing it the way Bert Reynolds normally played stuff. He's very cut and dried, very kind of, you know, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. And he's doing it in kind of this hip way, but he's still, he's not charming it up the way you imagine Bert doing it. Rick asked him, he goes, you know, why are you playing the character so, uh, so, like, so dry? You know, I normally think of you as a personality first actor. And then Burt Reynolds, well, because that's what Quinn Martin wants. I mean, he doesn't want his leads horsing around on his show. He doesn't want you being cute. He doesn't want you having big trademarks or anything. You're you're the lead. He wants you to basically do it like Ephraim Zimbalist fucking Jr. You know, that's the way you do it. Now, 
the guest stars, they're the ones that have the fireworks. They're the ones that get to do this and get to do that. All the bad guys, they're the ones that have the good parts. Um, that's how you lure the guests to come <laughs> on the show. You're like, you're giving them a really good, juicy role. That's how you get Gary Lockwood. Absolutely. And, this. and, and uh, so when uh, Rick starts doing um, Man Hunter, he realized how right Burt was. You know, because like, yeah, he's got a very good role in this. But everyone else gets to have do all the fireworks. He's just got to be the strong, tough. He still gets. A, guy. He still gets a lot of mileage out of that brooding kind of. Well, uh, he gets a lot of mileage out of his cowboy experience. He yeah. makes it really feel like Glenn Ford does to some degree well, in, in Cades County. He makes it feel like a modern day western because of his cowboy oh, swagger. Okay, I hit it when it happened. Uh huh. When the bank robbery happens yeah, yeah. and the gun goes off, yeah. and his dog is. Killed. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And and his uh, his his childhood his, his sweetheart and his childhood sweetheart who's married the yeah, other guy yeah married the, 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 the while he was away at war the doofus sheriff yeah yeah while he was away at war I cried in yeah. that moment oh I did too it's that they played that so well mm. and he played that so well his like he went deeper stoic yeah, yeah you know it's yeah, like yeah. it's like he hardened well you guys love the the scene with him and Tim O'Connor where he's like this is my Tim O'Connor's yeah, amazing yeah, yeah. in this <laughs> Tim O'Connor is hilarious in this yeah but the big monologue that Rick that's has that's the scene yeah because it's yeah. like it goes like it does exactly what you think it's gonna Maybe do when, Tim, when he's grabbing Tim yeah, O'Connor yeah, and he's yeah, like yeah. oh you wanna know why I did this this is why I did it yeah, it's my uh, dead dog. This is why I did it. Dead no, no, sweetheart. The, the best this part, is why I did it. Like, it just, the I, best part about He doesn't that, care so much. He just lost money. No, that's, that's the best part about it is that it starts off with the dead sweetheart and then it kind of goes to like these other people that you don't think that he would like. <laughs> they it, lost their it's money. It's the dead sweetheart. It's the cop that's shot. And all of a sudden it's like, he just lost some money. They're going to have banker. nightmares. Yeah. And then he takes yeah. him and then he shows the dog and he punctuates this with the dog. This is my dog. It was a good dog. Yeah, it's a good and dog. And it was a good dog. <laughs> now, the first thing we said when we saw that dog was, wow, that's a really good dog. Yeah, and and yeah. I was like, and it actually, it ripped my heart out when that happened. Mm. And it and, and that's, by the way, pre-John Wick. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, you know, everybody talked about John Wick and how, you know, like, one thing you don't do is kill a man's dog. That's his yeah. motivation. They killed his dog. Well, Manhunter did it first. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Rick did it first. And then it has that whole middle section because like, like I, I'm telling you, we, we do awards. All right. Obviously I think Rick's going to win best actor, but I think James Olsen wins best supporting actor. Oh, all right. James as Olsen. the disgruntled second yeah, criminal oh my God, underneath so Gary Lockwood, so, who's jealous I, of all the newspaper print that Gary Lockwood is getting. And I don't like James Olsen, but he's, Kills it in this fucking movie. So funny. Just the image of him with his hands out the window oh, of the I know, car. Yeah. Oh, it's just like it's, the, the indignities never end the for him. Indignities <laughs> never end for him. It's just it's almost too humiliating a role to play. Yeah. All right, and he just commits to it a hundred percent. And then also, it's also kind of funny because okay, so there's all these like subtleties in there. Like okay, so for one, not only is it driving James Olsen crazy. To be second fiddle. Yeah, that, you know, <laughs> Frank, all right, Gary Lockwood's character, what is like such the boss of him, all right, that his wife, all right, his his, his sister is like, has a love affair going on with her brother. Yeah. All right. But then it's actually shown that Frank is, he's almost like a simple-minded child, all right? He's just- He loves know, his horse. Yeah, he's just, you know, he's, he's, he's got a childlike mind, but he's a violent child. Yeah. So he's almost like a Bill, Billy Mummy, all right, in the Twilight Zone episode. Everyone has to placate his childish, murderous rages. And if you placate his childish, murderous rages, then you maybe get along. And that's why Stephanie Powers handles him so well. 
But then it's like James Olsen has to hear, oh no, he's the mastermind. <laughs> he's the mastermind. He's not a mastermind. And then he's reading the article and he's yeah. like, they say he's like, you know, uh, a masterful with a Tommy gun. I know how to shoot a Tommy gun. <laughs> and he's the, one and the way actually... he executes his, his minions. <laughs> yeah, they called him a minion. That was the. His execution of his minions. <laughs> And he's the one that actually is holding it all together. Yeah. Now I have to say, I think there was a, a script change made at uh-huh. one point. I think the, the dog getting killed yeah. because of Gary Lockwood's love of horses, like how mm-hmm. obsessed he is with horses, how um, he, the, what gives him away is that he goes shopping for a bridle yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and yeah. a saddle for the horses. That that's the, the device that mm-hmm. allows them to eventually find him. And uh, because he loves horses so much, when Rick first comes riding into town, he's riding on a horse and he's got his dog with him. Yeah. He gets off and he goes in and then the bank robbery happens and the mm. dog gets killed and everything. Somehow, I bet in the original script, it was his horse that got shot somehow. Oh, maybe you might be right and about that, that. And that that Gary Lockwood, because afterwards he's like, I didn't mean to shoot his dog. Like he's mm. really upset yeah, that, yeah. that this accident happened during their bank robbery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that actually really choked me up. Yeah, the yeah. fact that this kind of criminal guy was so broken up over mm-hmm. what happened. He's like, I didn't I mean, mean to shoot it. that dog. I didn't mean, I didn't mean to, to shoot that I Louise. Yeah, I didn't mean to shoot that yeah, dog. I didn't mean it to happen. Like he's really upset about it. Yeah. And I was thinking, if had that been a horse, it would have been even worse for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah, I'll yeah, bet yeah, that, and I it's just impossible to stage or whatever. You can't. Yeah. Also, that horse in the very end, that slow-mo sequence yeah, yeah. is so good with the horse yeah. and he's jumping on bareback and the stunt that happens. Well, no, it's no, I mean, I, I, no, the, 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 the movie is definitely made in the wake of Bonnie and Clyde and John Malias' Dillinger. And it does a really good job yeah, of it's jumping capturing off. Depression era yeah. America. Oh, it does a really sets. good job. No, no, oh the, like, it's a very A plus plus on no, yeah, know, no, no, no. all the cars, the all those production, cool cars. The production design of all the whatever little small little California towns they went to to shoot it. You know, they're like a block or two blocks long or like they're exquisite. I, I've seen some recent movies recently that like fell apart yeah. when it came to stuff like this. This thing puts them all to shame. And, and, you know, but it's it's definitely jumping off from those kind of movies. Look, it doesn't have the punchy dialogue, as good as the dialogue is. It doesn't have the punchy dialogue of a John Malias or a Bettina Newman or forget about Robert Town. You know, but it does have a slow motion. It does have slow motion deaths. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> the only well, thing, that was a great well, shot, the only thing the movie needs is like just bursting blood squibs. I mean, this is the only thing it really it need. It needs 70 movie violent action. And if it hadn't have been a TV movie, it would have had it. It would have had it. It would have had it. No, it needs a Lord and Thunder level of shit done with a Tommy gun. No, Quinn Martin <laughs> would, would probably be making these in California, but it doesn't yeah. look like California to me. It looks like somewhere well, they could have. I'm sure. I'm. I'm sure. Especially back then. I'm sure. Yeah. You go Just, up to. You go up to. Because I've, I've scattered all these little towns like Cali- you have. You go up to King, here. California. You go up to Lone Pine. Yeah. You go up to this place. Yeah. You go up to that place. This movie's available on YouTube. In case anyone wants to watch it, um, I picked up a VHS of this for five dollars and sixty nine cents. It's a copy from Good Time, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have some good times with that one. Okay, so let me just read the, the uh, what ended up happening with the show. Okay, I'll just pick this up from here. Rick found out what Burt Reynolds told him about starring in a Quentin Martin show was right on. Almost everyone in the cast got to do more acting than him. Nevertheless, he was on top of the call sheet. He was a good guy, but the good violent guy. Rick liked that. (laughs) It was his show, and when there was a fight, he won them. Then the TV movie aired, and it did pretty well. It didn't beat the ABC Wednesday night movie of the week, which that Wednesday was Gloria Swanson making her television debut in the horror film The Killer Bees. (laughs) But both CBS and Quinn Martin were happy enough with the results to make a full 22-episode commitment to the next season's fall schedule. 
So a very happy Rick Dalton spent the rest of 74 and the beginning of 75 shooting his series. Rick spent the last season of Bounty Law desperately trying to get off it. Then he spent the last eight years kicking himself in the ass for his arrogance. Dalton truly imagined there wasn't a chance of him ever landing another series on his own ever again. So despite him being on the cover of TV Guide twice for Bounty Law, and even his inside story about the flamethrower incident in 69, when he was in the fall preview issue of TV Guide for the 74-75 television season with a new series starring him, Rick felt something that it took him many years in the business to feel. Grateful. Rick Dalton was back. The series followed the same template as the TV movie pilot. Rick Dalton as 30s bounty hunter David Barrett chasing after 30s gangster characters that were surrogates for famous real-life 30s gangsters. The first episode of the series saw him going after a mob Barker-like gang called the Ma Gantry Gang, with High Sierra star Ida Lupino playing Ma and Sam Elliott and Don Stroud recreating his role from Roger Corman's Ma Barker epic Bloody Mama as her two killer sons. In another episode, babyface Michael Burns would play a babyface Nelson type. In another, Bo Hopkins and 70s sleazebag William Watson would recreate the Kansas City Massacre one year before Bo Hopkins would play Pretty Boy Floyd in Dan Curtis's TV movie about the same subject. And in an episode reminiscent of Rick's Cades County segment, Legs Diamond star Ray Datton would star in a chapter titled The Man Who Thought He Was Dillinger. Befitting a Quinn Martin series, it had a cornucopia of big-name guest stars. Bradford Dillman, Robert Logia, Tom Skerritt, Leslie Nielsen, Robert Foxworth, Celeste Holmes, Shirley Knight, Kevin McCarthy, and Woody Strode. And it even reunited Dalton with some actors from his past. Kaz Garris from the 14th Fist of McCluskey, the Green Hornets Van Williams showed up for the show, and Joan Van Ark, his co-star on Rick's Night Gallery, did an episode. And Leslie H. Martinson, who directed him in the Stuart Granger African-helmed picture Big Game, helmed a couple episodes. Even Pete Duell's brother Jeffrey made an appearance. It went on the air September 11th, 1974, at the start of the fall season. Wednesday was its night of the week on CBS, at 10 o'clock, right after William Conrad on Cannon. It aired opposite two other new series on the other channels. Teresa Graves' Get Christy Love on ABC, which is what I would have been watching, and Barry Newman's Petrocelli on NBC. Manhunter was a damn good show, one of Quint Martin's best, but it lasted only one season. CBS gave it the axe for three big reasons. One, it never beat its rival show, Petrocelli, over on the Peacock Network. Two, it never sufficiently held on to its lead-in show, Cannon's Audience. But three, and the main reason, was the show was highly criticized for its level of violence. It was easily the most violent show on CBS, even beating out Mike Connors on Mannix. To get anywhere near as violent, you had to flip over to ABC and watch SWAT. Because of all the gangsters shooting Tommy guns and the methods Dalton's Dan Barrett would use to trap his quarry, sawed-off shotguns, dynamite, bear traps, Manhunter seemed more violent. <laughs> Then add to the fact that the lead wasn't even a real cop. Manhunter was one badass show. It lasted its original 22 episodes, but it never went to repeats. CBS instead aired uh, reruns of Burt Reynolds' old show, Dan August. However, this time, nobody blamed Rick. He was dynamic in the role. He was professional to work with. And as the series lead, he set a good example for the cast and crew. And most importantly, Quinn Martin had nothing but good things to say about him. Rick's agent told him the networks were looking for another series to plug him into. And that series became the Australian show Dingo Dan, where Rick played a a truck driver from Texas and Australia known as Truckies, 
and uh, who, uh, with his uh, pet dingo, Marsha, uh, just rode from place to place and got into uh, <coughs> adventures. It was on uh, uh, for uh, three seasons in uh, Australia, though it never got a, uh, 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 syndicated in, in the States. Okay, so now I'm going to read uh, uh, part two of my Q&A done in 1999 with Rick Dalton. I'll pick it up right where we left off before. This is me talking. Another underrated action director you worked a lot with was Paul Winkos. My favorite of all my directors. And director of the best movie ever made. 14 Fist of McCluskey. How would you describe the difference between Whitney and Winkos? Oh, good question, Quentin. The biggest difference between the two was their style. The biggest similarity was their method. Both men knew what they were doing. They knew how to shoot. They knew how to run a set. They knew how to get the best out of their people. They knew how to block a scene, stage a scene, and they knew how to get their day done. Besides Paul's ability, the most impressive thing about Paul was he looked like a director. He was an impressive cat, and he inspired confidence. By comparison, Bill looked like a pile of dirty laundry. Also, Paul was more what you'd call an actor's director. So Battle of the Coral Sea was the first film you did together? I worked for him in a one-line bit in a film he did for Columbia with Darren McGavin called The Case Against Brooklyn. If I remember correctly, there was a pretty good part in that flick that I read for. I didn't get it. Brian Hutton got it. He later became a director. Yeah, he directed Where Eagles Dare and Kelly's Heroes. Right. But even though I didn't get it, Paul dug me. So when he was doing Gidget, he brings me in for one of James Darren's surfer buddies. And I almost get it. But at the last minute, Tommy Laughlin comes in and wins the role. So when Battle of the Coral Sea comes along, third time's a charm. And both me and Tommy land parts. Think about that movie. Even though the story was fabricated, it was based on a real incident of prisoners escaping from a Japanese POW camp and how they pulled off the escape. Later, when I started doing Bounty Law, I get a stunt double named Cliff Booth. And he became my stunt double from that point on. And as time wore on, my best friend. Later, we wrote The Fireman together, and he directed the action scenes and directed the two sequels. Anywho, Cliff was one of the most decorated heroes of World War II. I mean, Audie Murphy and Neville Brand level of hero. And it turns out, the Battle of the Coral Sea was based on his escape from a Japanese prisoner of war camp in the Philippines. Wow. That's incredible. That's true. You bet. So when I get Bounty Law, both uh, Paul and uh, Bill directed episodes. And I have to say, it made me feel really good whenever they did a show, because I could tell both of them were really proud of me. Well, how did it work out you got the 14 Fist of McCluskey? Sure luck. I was under contract at Universal Pictures at the time. And Paul was doing McCluskey for Columbia Pictures. And fucking Fabian had my part. Ten days before he starts shooting, he breaks his shoulder doing a Virginian, directed by William Whitney, no less. Columbia wants either Bobby Darren or Ed Burns to replace him. But Wenko fights the Columbia brass for me and gets his way. So they borrow me from Universal to do McCluskey. Like that film really holds up and it's a true classic of the genre. A best movie I ever made, that's for damn sure. What did you think of the remake Richard Donner did with Mel Gibson? Well, you know, I worked with Dick Donner back in my TV days, you know, a couple of times. And Mel guested it on Dingo Dan the year before he did Mad Max. So I like both men. But frankly, I didn't see the point of remaking it other than, you know, utilizing the popularity of the title. On the other hand, I thought it was pretty groovy to make a film good enough that 30 years later, they'd remake it. And to tell you the truth, I'm pretty fucking happy it wasn't a passion ours. So do you remember when Mel Gibson guested on Dingo Dan? Of course I do. George Miller directed the episode. George Miller? No, not that George Miller. 
<laughs> the other one. Oh, the man from Snowy River, George Melly. Right. You see, back then, Mel, Steve Bisbee, John Jarrett, and a young fellow named Tony Bonner, they were the swinging dicks in Australia. None of them had done the movies they were later to be known for yet. But all four of them had done a small Aussie film together called Summer City. And the year after doing my show is when they all did the movies that broke them in Sydney. Have you seen Mel Gibson since? Not in the last 25 years, but we saw each other a couple of times after he did Mad Max. In fact, I, he, we almost started in a picture together. It was another World War II movie like McCluskey. Oh, Attack Force Z? Oh, yeah, the part that John Philip Law played. I think that's what it was called. I never saw it. How come you didn't do it? That would have been cool. I can't remember. Something got in the way. You mentioned Tom Laughlin, better known as Billy Jack, and I'm a big fan of both Billy Jack and Tom Laughlin. You worked with him in the Battle of the Coral Sea, and he was uh, two of the fists in the 14 Fists of McCluskey. And he did a battle law. So I take it you two were friends? You bet. He got me cast in the only legit theater production I ever did. It was a play called Fragile Fox. Oh, the play that Robert Aldrich's attack was based on? Right again. Man, Q, you sure know your stuff. Uh, Tommy played the Jack Palance role, and I played the part William Smithers played. Holy shit, I would have loved to have seen that. Well, my guess is you were probably two years old at the time. <laughs> well, probably. <laughs> what did you think of Billy Jack? Sensational. Tom was wonderful in that flick. The scene in the ice cream parlor is one of the great badass action scenes of all time. Well, I ain't seen it since it came out. What's the ice cream parlor scene? <laughs> well, you know, the, you know, the, the, you know, the famous scene where Billy Jack gives that little speech before he fucks those red nets up. Um, you know, Bernard, Gene, and all the other kids at the Freedom School always tell me I need to learn how to control my violent temper and be pacifist and nonviolent like they are. And I try, Bernard. I really do. I try. I really try. I really, really, really try. I do. I do. I do. But when I see what you do to a little girl, we so precious that we call her God's little ray of sunshine. And when I think of the years of pain and humiliation that this idiotic act of yours will cause, it just makes me go berserk! And then he beats up everybody. Kicks ass. <laughs> and then <laughs> Rick said... Not about Tom. <laughs> well, I've been doing it since I was 12. <laughs> well, you see, Tommy was very enamored of Brando. And while he knew he wasn't as good as Brando, he felt he was better than McQueen. And Billy Jack was his way to prove it. <laughs> Did he ever talk to you about being in Billy Jack? Yes, actually. I think I almost played the sheriff with the hippie daughter. Holy shit! You almost played the Kenneth Toby role? Yeah, I th that's, that's who I think. Did. That would have been fucking awesome. Why didn't you do it? I don't know. It just, it just didn't work out. I can't remember why. <laughs> well, after such a tremendous success as Billy Jack, you'd think Tom Laughlin would have carte blanche in this town for the rest of his life. I mean, why do you think he didn't do better after the first two Billy Jack movies? Well, of all the people I ever met in this business, nobody, and I mean nobody, had a bigger hate on for the studios than Tommy Laughlin. And the studios? They hated him right back. Tom was going to show Hollywood how it should be done. And then, God bless him, he fucking did it. He beat him at their own fucking game. 
He embarrassed the shit out of Warner Brothers. But Hollywood is a company town. You don't make friends in Detroit by embarrassing the Ford Motor Company. And you don't make friends in Hollywood by making Warners look like buffoons and then bragging about it to the press. Still, I'm surprised he didn't at least get a few acting offers at the studio level. That wasn't Tom's bag. He wanted just appear in movies. He wanted those movies to be his movies. I'm sure he got a few acting offers, but knowing Tom, he probably told him to fuck off. In fact, after all the shit he said about Wonder Brothers, I think they came back to him and offered him the John Saxon role in Enter the Dragon. And if he had said yes to that, and then it goes out and does what it did, nobody could have denied him. But making dumbass action movies for the studios wasn't what Tom was about. Tom wasn't just another swinging dick. Tom had vision. If he couldn't work his way, he'd rather not work, so he didn't. The Video Archives podcast will return in two weeks for part two of Day of the Dalton, our celebration of the life and works of actor Rick Dalton. Thank you so much for tuning in and have a great night. The Video Archives podcast is hosted by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery and produced by Josh Richmond and Gala Avery with executive producers Colin Anderson and Natalie Mualem. Our engineers are Alex Gonzalez and Casey Holford. Find out more about the show and get Video Archives merch at videoarchivespodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Video Archives and on Instagram at Video Archives Pod. Despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it, besides the fact that the issue is very near and dear to my heart. Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives? I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y dot org, to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's projectavery.org. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 